Hey, thanks for checking out this week's message. We hope you're blessed by the Word of God. For more information on River of Life, you can check out our website, rolmt.com, or download our app. Just search R-O-L-M-T in your app store. Thanks. Family of God, how is it? How are you doing today? There is no better place to be than with the family of God. Amen? Amen. 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 I'm excited to be with you. I'm excited to bring the word today. It's been a minute since I brought the word, and so I'm excited to do that. Um, We're going to jump right in. Isaiah 55. So would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55, verse 6 through 13. Isaiah 55, verse 6 through 13. When you get there, just put your finger on that. I'll be back to that in a second. For most of my life, every summer I'd spend one week living in the wilderness with the men in my family. We'd go up to the, a providential park up in Ontario, Canada called Quetico, and we would go and live in the wilderness. We'd paddle our canoes for miles and miles and miles. We'd get to land masses and we'd put our canoes on our heads and our packs on our back and we'd cross the land and, and reach new lakes because up there it's really beautiful. There's just uh, lake after lake after lake after lake after lake. And so you can go um, just really, really super far back in there. And every year we would go and um, we would explore the wilderness. And for one week, we would be men again. And it was awesome. It was really, really an awesome time. And it really developed me. Every year from the time I was nine up until I moved to Montana, um, which I moved when I was 29. So for 20 years, we went up and spent one week in the wilderness, just the men in my family. And I have so many stories, stories of, of, uh, of carrying a canoe for a mile um, throughout, through the woods just so that we could get to an, uh, a new lake. Stories of uh, me with a, an 18-foot canoe on the top of my head jumping from log to log because um, we were trying to pass through like a bog area, if you know what that is. If you don't know what a bog is, it's kind of like quicksand. Um, and so uh, there would be, you know, well, my brother-in-law actually uh, s- slipped off the log and fell in, and it started to pull him down. We actually had to throw him rope and pull him out of the bog. Uh, yeah, this is not like a, a little, like, you know, daddy's little fishing trip. This is like the real thing. And so we would go and do this, and of all the stories that I have, of which there are countless, um, most of them involved uh, dangerously coming close to nature having the better of us. Um, Of all of those moments, uh, the uh, scariest that I can remember happened when I was 11 years old. Um, I'm going to talk to Dalton right now, who's producing. Dalton, uh, there is a weird tint on the lens, and this is for Star Valley, so just don't use that. Thank you. It's nothing you did, but uh, thank you for not doing it. (laughs) Okay. Love you, Dalton. All right. Um, so where was I? Oh yeah, um, where I'm, I'm in Quetico. So the scariest moment I can remember for, for, for my time in the wilderness growing up was this moment when I was 11 years old. We had just spent six days in the wilderness. We were paddling our canoes out, and the only thing that stood between us and uh, the boat that was going to come and meet us and tow us back to America, the only thing that stood between us was this body of water called Cache Bay. And Cache Bay is known for um, getting really, really crazy in a storm. 
Like it's big, it's deep, and it gets really, really gnarly. Like if you've ever been on Flathead Lake in a really gnarly storm, um, that's kind of what this is like. Not quite as big, but it would get really nasty. And it would get really bad really quick. And so that was the only thing that stood between us and going home. And so as we pull, uh, approached the bay, a storm, a, a storm happened, and the wind started to blow. It started to rain. Waves started crashing. And we tried to paddle through the storm. We made it a little bit, not very far before we realized that there was too much water coming over our canoe and it was, we were, one of us was going to flip and sink and it was going to be really dangerous. And so my dad decided that uh, it would be best for us to turn and go take shelter on an island. And so we found an island in the middle of this bay and we held up on the island and my, my dad and my uncle and the adults, um, they got together and they discussed what is the best thing that we're going to do because we have to miss this boat. We have no, there's no cell phones, there's no radio, we have no sat phone, there's no way of communicating to the boat that's coming to get us if we're going to be late. Um, so if we don't get it, then we're just stuck in the wilderness. And so um, there, my, my, my dad and my uncle get together and they're like, um, there is a ranger station that's halfway across the bay and if we can get there and catch the ranger, um, she has a motorboat and she can come out uh, in case of emergency, she can use the motorboat and come out and get us off the island. And so they decided the best thing for them to do is for all of the adults, my, my dad, my uncle, my brother, who was 18 at the time, and, uh, and my sister's boyfriend at the time, um, that they were going to get in the canoes and they were going to paddle and find the ranger station. And they were going to leave behind all of our gear and me me and the only thing I, that I had with me was my cousin Jack, who was eight years old. So like I said, I was all by myself. No. I love my cousin Jack. He was not helpful at the time. They left us behind on an island so that they could go get help. And I remember the fear that I had as an 11-year-old little boy. You can imagine standing on an island in the middle of a storm, watching my dad go uh, paddle into the water. He's my, protect, my protector. He's my safety. He's my provider. And I watch him paddle out into a storm and then disappear into the storm. I'm 11 years old. I'm, I'm on an island by myself with my cousin. And we don't know what to do. So me and my cousin, we, we say, okay, well, we got to get shelter from the storm somehow. And so we start walking across this island looking for some way that we could get, get shelter from the storm. And we find this tree that was a, fall, a down tree, a really large tree that, was, that had fallen down. And the roots were pulled out um, and the bottom of it was kind of hollowed out. And so we said, you know what, we can crawl inside this tree and we could take shelter from the storm. And so 11-year-old me and eight-year-old my, uh, my eight-year-old cousin crawl inside this tree and take shelter. And as I sat in that tree and I heard the wind blowing and I could hear the, the waves crashing on the rocks, my hope that I had that my father would come and save me slowly and slowly ticked away with the time. And I was there for what felt like forever. Realistically, it was probably like two hours. But it felt like forever. And as I was there, all of my hope felt like it was just dissipating. And every wave that crashed on the rocks, it felt like my faith went, went back out with the tide. I sat there scared. I sat there worried. And, and as I think back on the emotions that I had as I sat in the hollow of that tree, I imagine that is the feeling that the Israelites had in Isaiah 55. 
At the time of Isaiah 55, the nation of Israel is in complete shambles. The Babylonian empire has come in. They've destroyed Jerusalem. They've burned the temple to the ground and they've taken the people of God captive. The people of God, the children of the promise, now slaves in exile for 70 years. Isaiah is writing to a people who are generations removed from the benefits of being the children of Abraham. They don't remember what it's like to be in blessing anymore. They don't remember what it's like to have favor anymore. They have no home. They have no safety. They have no sustenance. Their pets' heads are falling off. That's a dumb and dumber joke, sorry. A few of you, you you're my people. Okay. They had no hope for a future. That's who Isaiah is writing to. They've long awaited a promised deliverance, but it hasn't come. It's the lowest point in their history to that day. They are tired, hopeless, and faithless. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're tired, hopeless, and faithless? I think about this story. I think about the Israelites uh, being in a foreign land. I think of how interesting it is that sometimes when we're going through struggle, sometimes when we're going through suffering, isn't it ironic that the, uh, the feeling that we have sometimes is, is a foreign feeling? We feel like, I don't belong here. I should have been in a different place. We start to question, uh, how did I get in, in this place? What wrong turn did I make in my life to end up in this struggle that I'm in currently? We feel like we don't belong. And the longer and longer that we're away from blessing and favor, the longer that we're in the midst of our struggle, we begin to question God and we begin to lose faith and we lose hope. We get tired and weary. Tired, hopeless, faithless. And it's to this group of people, faithless in a foreign land, that is who God writes to, or that's who Isaiah writes to in Isaiah 55. That's who God gives an invitation to hope again. And that's what I want to give you today. I want to give you an invitation to hope again. Isaiah 55, 6 through 13. Here we go. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, for he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is that my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. What a promise. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. Myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word that you've given me for today. I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts in this moment, right now, Lord, as I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have for us, Lord God. I pray that the word would penetrate our heart, Lord God. It would cause us to, to stir into action, Lord God. And that we would live for your name and your name alone. We love you. We give you all the praise, Lord. 
Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you are in a season of your life, a season of struggle, a season of suffering, I believe God has a lesson for you. And maybe you're not in that season currently. And if you're not, I promise you, you will have one. And I want to give you some tools to navigate that season. Amen. You on, on with me here? Okay. This lesson that I feel like God wants to give us today comes in three parts. One of the things I love about studying scripture is, is that God is a God of order. Do you know this? God's a God of order. And there's sometimes as we read scripture, it can feel like a jumbled mess. Like there's just a ton of ideas that are happening. But if you look closely, you can see the order, the, the, the imprint of our God of order in the scripture. And you can do that in this passage, actually all throughout Isaiah 55. God gives this lesson and it's broken into three parts. And it's actually, it actually repeats itself first in the first five verses. And then it repeats itself, itself again from the six, verse six to verse 13. The three parts are God gives us a call to action. He gives us a truth to learn and he gives us a promise to stand on. A call to action, a truth to learn and a promise to stand on. And that's what we're gonna try and take home today, okay? So the first thing, the call. This is the call that God gives. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. There are some scholars that, that, that look at this verse and some people that read this verse and they believe that it's talking about um, a, a time in the future, like a time in Revelation where, where God, a man will call out to God and God won't respond. But contextually, in looking at Isaiah 55, I don't believe that that's what he's talking about. There may be other scriptures that kind of point to that in, at the end of times and in the tribulation, but I don't believe that that's what Isaiah is talking about. I believe that Isaiah is, is specifically writing to a people in a specific time, and he's writing to their situation. The Israelites are, 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 are banished in a foreign land. They're, in, have in that, they're going through all those feelings of being tired, of having no hope and having no faith. They're in the midst of struggle. And Isaiah Isaiah is writing them to say that seek the Lord while he may be found, indicating that the time that you're in is the time when God can be found. It made me ask the question, where is it that God can most often be found? And as I looked at scripture, I came up with a couple different times. And so I'm going to go over these. He's with Abraham after he leaves his home and his family. He's with Ishmael after he's abandoned by his father. He's with Joseph after he's betrayed by his family, sold into slavery, and then imprisoned for something he didn't do. He's with Moses in the desert, in the wilderness with the Israelites. He's in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's in the lion's den with Daniel. He's on the run from Saul with David. He's in prison with Paul. He's in banishment on the island of Patmos with John. Where is it that God is most often found? Every single one of those moments with those people, it's the lowest point of their life. Every single one of those moments, it's the lowest point of their life. And yet that's where God is found. In fact, if you look at David's life, later on in David's life, uh, while he's on the run from Saul in the wilderness, running from Saul, he doesn't need a prophet to come up and tell him what God is thinking. But later on in his life, when everything's going his way and he's on the top of the mountain, he needs Nathan to come and tell him that God's displeased with him. It's harder, to reach, harder for God to reach you when you're on the mountaintop than it is for him to reach you when you're in the valley. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. If you were to ask your neighbor, where is it that you met God? 
Where is it that you, you started your relationship with God? If you're, don't ask him right now. It'd be a little bit disruptive. But for the next time we do a family meal or a gathering, that's a good little uh, uh, icebreaker. Is how did, you come, how did you meet God? Tell me about how your, tell me your testimony, how your relationship with God started. And if you were to do that, I bet you would find out. I put money on it that it was something like, I met God in the midst of a broken marriage. I met, met God after a messy divorce. I met God in the midst of an addiction or in prison or in financial ruin or in a struggle uh, with depression or anxiety or after the loss of a loved one or in a life full of dysfunction. So there would be some kind of story that echoes that same sentiment. Because that's where we meet God. We meet him in the lowest of low part of our life. We meet him in the valley. Because God is found in the low places. Why the low places? Because the soil of our heart is so much more fertile there. We live around mountains. Do you know any farms that are on top of a mountain? No, you all laugh. Why? Because we don't plant crops on top of a mountain. The soil's not fertile up there. You, it's not ready to receive a seed up on top of the mountain. You don't plant crops on top of the mountain because they won't grow there. They grow in the valley, in the low place. The soil is so much easier to till there. It's easier to turn the soil and find the rocks and the, and the things that need to be removed so that a seed can grow. And that's exactly what God is trying to do in our life. He's trying to plant a seed of faith in your life. And it's so much easier to, to get into your life when you are in the low place. He can turn the soil of your heart. He can remove the things out of your life that will prevent a seed from, from growing and, and blossoming. He meets you in the low place because you're more receptive to him there. God is trying to plant a seed of faith in your life. The problem is so often when we run into struggle, when we run into suffering, when we run into times where we're removed from blessing and favor, we resent it. We get mad. We question God. We say, God, what are you doing? How, why did you let me end up in this place? How did I get here, God? What were you thinking? Don't you know? Don't you know what would be best for me? We question God. In verse seven, it says, uh, in verse seven, it says, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. It's easy to pass by that scripture. We're Christians. Oh, that's obviously talking about someone. We're not the wicked. We're not the unrighteous. Right? It's really easy to pass over that scripture. That's someone else. That's that dirty, rotten sinner who never comes to church. I bet they don't write a tithe check. That's someone else. That's not me. That's not Johnny Christian. But in verse 7, the wicked and the unrighteous, that's talking about those. Uh, I like one way that this um, commentary puts it. It says, the wicked and the righteous are those who have made the mistake of judging God's plan and his word by the standard of their immediate circumstance. Oh, come on, that's good. I'm going to read it one more time. In verse 7, the wicked and the unrighteous are those who have made the mistake of judging God's plan and his word by the standard of their immediate circumstance. So often, we resent the struggle that we're going through. We resent God. We question whether or not God knows what, he do, what he's doing. But in the scripture, it's telling us that, that that in itself is a wicked way of living our life. 
It's an unrighteous way of living our life. And it's something that, that merits uh, repentance. To question whether or not God knows what he's doing is a form of pride in our life. And the problem with, with that pride is that it puts us in direct opposition to God. See, we challenge God when we're going through struggles because we hope that it's going to stir him up to get on our side. But in James, it says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. When we rebel against God, when we question what he's doing, when we question his plan and, and, and we buck against what he's trying to do in our life, just because we're uncomfortable and we don't like the, the feeling of struggle, we're becoming prideful. And that exact pride is putting us in opposition to the God that we're begging to come and do something for us. We think we know what we're doing. We think we know what will be best for our life. There's a way that seems right to us and God isn't aligning with us. But scripture says that the way that seems right to a man leads to destruction. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. It's so easy for us to go in the midst of struggle and, and push back on it because it's uncomfortable and we don't like being in it and we don't understand what the, the value of that struggle would be. And so we push back against God. But Isaiah is saying here that we need to repent of that. But here's the good news. That's a little harsh. But the good news here is that God is faithful to forgive us. He's so quick to freely pardon us. Aren't you thankful for a God who is quick to freely pardon you? Instead of, of, of resenting the struggle, we need to steward the struggle. To steward is to take care of something. Something that has been given to you. Something that doesn't belong to you, but has been placed in your possession. You are called to steward of it. We need to steward our struggles, view them as an opportunity to do two things. One, to find God. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He's saying, this is your opportunity. He's closer than he'll ever be to you in the midst of your struggle, in your low point. This is when God is most accessible to you. Seek him while he may be found. Don't make the mistake of just whining and bellyaching and complaining about the struggle that you're in. He's saying, this is the time. This is your opportunity. Seek him while he may be found. You'll notice that the Israelites, they, they were lost for, for so long. And they didn't find God in the Holy Land. They didn't find him in the temple. They didn't find him in tradition. They found him in a foreign land because that's where they were most desperate. And that is the ticket. In our lowest place, we are most desperate and we are open to receiving what God has from us. And that's the next thing we have to view it as an opportunity to find. We have to view our struggle as an opportunity to receive the seed of faith that God is trying to plant in our life. Because when we do that, that seed of faith allows us to set aside our thoughts and, and our plans. And it opens us up to following something that we don't understand and we can't comprehend. And that is exactly what God is calling us to do. God is calling us to follow something that doesn't make sense to us. I know so many people that spend their life, say, it just doesn't make sense. Why would God want this from me? It's not supposed to make sense to you. 
it's not supposed to make sense. It's not supposed to align with earthly logic and earthly ways. It's not supposed to. He's saying we have to set aside our plans. We have to set aside our thoughts so that we can align ourselves with him. That's the truth that we need to learn. The call, seek the Lord while he may be found. The truth, my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are my ways your ways. As the, earth is higher, or as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways above your ways. God is calling us to drive beyond our headlights. What I mean by that is, well, when I moved to, to Montana, um, I, I obviously, I came from Chicago. I grew up as a city kid. So in Chicago, there's no such thing as darkness. I mean, we are darkness, but it's not like actual absence of light. There's always some kind of humming neon sign on a bar or, or street lights. It is never truly dark. You couldn't look up in the night sky and see a star if you wanted to. It's never dark. And so I, I grew up learning to drive in a place where, where it's not really ever truly dark. I can always see what's all around me. And then I move out to Montana. And there's sometimes when we're on a, a, a back mountain road and it's like everything is complete darkness. I can only see the cone of light that's in front of me. And even if I put my high beams on, I can't see beyond the cone of light, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? And what happens when we drive in those conditions? When we drive in those conditions, when we can't see what's to our left and to our right, when we can't see what's behind us or what's beyond our headlights, we adjust how we drive, right? We slow down. We become more cautious. In our head, we start to imagine that there's, there's animals and things like that that want to jump out in front of us, and, and, and even though we can't see them. And if we were on that same road full of sunlight, we would be zipping down the road, not a care in the world. But something about not being able to see what's surrounding us and not what's, you know, being able to see what's in front of us causes us to slow down. It causes us to adjust our approach. For fear of what cannot be seen, we slow our pace. But in our faith walk, we can't do that. In our faith walk, our pace doesn't change just because we can't see what's in front of us. We are called to walk by faith and not by, by sight. We're called to lean not on our own understanding, but to lean on his understanding. Yes. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We are called to drive beyond our headlights. We are called to not slow down just because we can't see what's ahead. We're called just because we can't see the outcome of the struggle that we're in. That doesn't mean that we slow down or we stop believing or, 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 or we question God. We keep running with the same pace because we're trusting not what we can see, but we're trusting the person who told us to run. Oh, I'm fired up today. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. A faithless people are of no use to God. Amen. A faithless people are of no use to a God of miracles. It's like having a quarterback on your football team who's afraid to throw receivers open. It's, it's almost football season. I'm really excited. But my football team has never had a good quarterback ever. I'm a Chicago Bears fan. We've never experienced it. I'm praying one day. Maybe this year. Who knows? We're the oldest team in the league. Over 100 years old, we've had more quarterbacks than everyone. <laughs> Never one time have we had a quarterback throw for more than 4,000 4, yards. Every other franchise has done it many times. We, I don't know what good quarterback play is. 
But according to the internet, there's a difference between good quarterbacks and bad quarterbacks. And most often what it is, is, is in college, the players are so good that you can wait until a receiver's open and you can throw it to him after you see that he's open. But in the NFL, that's not what open means. In the NFL, you have to, a quarterback has to trust that I'm going to throw the ball to a spot where my receiver will be, but he's not yet. And that is what separates the good quarterbacks from the Bears quarter. I mean, other quarterbacks. <laughs> That's what separates a good quarterback from a bad quarterback. Is someone who's willing to say, you know what, I can't see it, but I'm still going to throw it. But when we are a faithless people, when we refuse to, to, to uh, drive beyond our headlights then we have a God who has all the weapons in the world, but we never put him into play because we're afraid to give him the ball. We have two jobs as believers. Trust what he says and praise what he does. Trust what he says and praise what he does. When he says forgive, we forgive. Why? Doesn't make sense. He said it, so we're going to do it. When he says love, we love, even if it's to our enemy, even if it's to someone who's mistreating us back, and we say, God, shouldn't we defend ourselves? No, love your enemy. Okay, I'm going to love. Hallelujah. If he says stand up in defense of someone who can't defend themselves, we stand up in defense. And when he says stand up and be a peacemaker, we be a peacemaker. We have to follow the word that he says. When he says something, we have to trust what he says. And then after he does something incredible with our faith that we exhibit through doing and trusting what he says, then we have to praise what he does. Two jobs, trust what he says, praise what he does. And that is what God is saying here in verse 10. My, my thoughts are above your thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth. You can't comprehend what I'm, what I'm saying. And then he tells you, but don't worry, you can trust me. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So it is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word won't return void. It will accomplish its purpose. In the lowest point of your life, when you open yourself up and God comes and he plants a seed, God is saying, I will be faithful to tend to it. You can trust the faith that you give me. When I plant that, that, that seed of faith in your life, I will be faithful to water it and tend to it and make it grow and bud and flourish into something that is beautiful. God is not, he is faithful to complete the work that he started in you because he's a good gardener. Do you know that God's a gardener? In Genesis 2.8, it says that, you know, we know that God created the earth, right? right? I'm gonna assume that we all, we all know that. If you don't know, spoiler alert, Genesis 1, God creates the earth. God creates the earth, but the garden of Eden, he plants. Did you know that? Everything else, he makes the ocean, he makes the land, he makes all this stuff, but he saves one thing. He plants, God plants the Garden of Eden because he's a gardener. He sows the seeds. He tends to them because he's a good gardener. In, in John, we, John 15, we see that he is still gardening our life. 
He's trimming back the, 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 the dead branches so that we continue to grow and produce fruit. God is a good gardener. And what he is saying here is that he will water the seed that he's planted. Amen. And he'll water it with his word. That's what he says. My word will not return empty. It will water the, plant, the seed that I've planted in your life. His word is, is, is sustenance for us. It, it, it's the sunlight that a seed needs. It's the water that a seed needs. It's the nutrients that it needs. That's what his word is to us. And he's promising us. He's saying, I will cover you in my promises. I will cover you. I will sing songs of deliverance over you in the midst of your struggle. If you just trust me, if you just trust me, I will give you instruction and I will give, I will give you words that will edify you. I will pour my word over your life. I will tend to the seed that I planted in the low place. That is what God is promising here. And he's promising that your seed will grow and it will bud and it will flourish. That means you will find success. But not only that, and this is how much I love our God. He says, not only will you flourish, but you'll bless others through you. It will yield seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Bread for the eater, that's this generation. The people in your life, when, when you accept God in the low place and you allow him to, to water your life with the, with the water of his word, he will cause you to grow and bud and flourish and you will produce bread for the eater. That's this generation. Your children, your family, your friends, your coworkers, you will be a blessing to those around you. But not only to those around you in, in the immediacy, you will be a blessing to those for further generations. Seed to the sower. Not only will you bless the people in your life, but then through them, you will bless another generation. And through their children, you'll bless another generation. All because you said, I am choosing to set aside my thoughts and set aside my plans. And I'm choosing to accept that your ways are higher than my ways and your plans are, are nowhere near for me to come comprehend, but I'm going to trust you, God, and I'm going to accept what you said. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It'll never make sense to me, but I'm going to forgive when you say forgive, and I'm going to love when you say love. And when you tell me to stand still, I'm going to stand still. And when you tell me to move, I'm going to move. But all I know is that I'm going to trust what you say and praise what you do. Come on, somebody. And this is how we do it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians how we do it. God, I love the Apostle Paul. Some people are, are off-put by the Apostle Paul because he's kind of harsh. Uh, but he just speaks to my soul. <laughs> I hope that doesn't mean, uh, it probably means that I'm harsh too. <laughs> but this is like heavy metal, this verse. So just, here we go. Verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage as the world do, war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So many people read this verse and they think that it's talking about other people. Uh, we're fighting back against the world. But Paul's saying you're fighting against your own mind. We don't wage war as the world does. He's saying there's a war right now waging in between your ears because your mind is full of thoughts because you think that there's a way. There's a way that seems right to a man. And, 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 and your, your mind is going a thousand miles an hour and, and all of those thoughts oppose the knowledge of God. And Paul is saying that we fight a different war. 
We demolish every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Church, how many times a day do you have a, a, a thought that goes through your brain that contradicts what God is saying in the, wor in the word? If you're like me, it's just like a nonstop filter. But Paul says we have to demolish the arguments, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And I love this part. We have to take captive every thought that we have and what? Make it obedient to Christ. Make your thoughts obedient to Christ. Our thoughts are so much lower than his thoughts. They're so far above our ways. We're never gonna understand it. It's never gonna make sense to you. We have to grab our thoughts, make them captive and make them obedient to what God said is true. God, he's good. The call, seek the Lord while he may be found. The truth, his ways are so much higher than our ways. And the promise. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands and instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of the briars, will the myrtle will grow. And this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Thank you, Jesus. God is saying, we will have a reason to praise. We will have a reason to praise. You will go out in joy. I what I love about, God says you'll go out in joy. He's not saying everything's going to be fixed. We're promised troubles. It's, it's just going to happen. We live in a fallen world. There will be brokenness all around us. But God says you will go out in joy. Joy isn't an emotion. It's a position of the heart. It's something we make up our mind to do. We can be sad and still full of joy. The other day I was having a bad day and my, and my prayer was, God, restore my joy. Hallelujah. Jesus tells us in John 16, no one can take away your joy. No one can take away your joy. We only give it up. You will go out in joy. You'll be led forth in peace. Peace that we don't need to understand. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all our understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind forever in Jesus Christ. You will go out in joy. You'll be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will celebrate with you. Creation will celebrate that you are walking through suffering and into blessing, but you're doing it with joy and peace. And this is my favorite part of the whole passage. Instead of a thorn bush, we'll grow a juniper. The struggles in our life should not produce good fruit. By all worldly logic that we understand, they shouldn't. There's nothing, nothing good should come of a miscarriage. Nothing good should come of an infertility. But nothing good should come of murder or betrayal or divorce or abandonment. And can I tell you, God hates all of those things. They break his heart just as much, if not more than ours. 
They broke his heart so much that he sent his son to die on a cross so that they could begin to repair them. By all accounts, those struggles should leave you broken and bitter and depressed and angry. They should steal your joy. They should steal your peace. Earthly logic, human logic says that struggle is not a fertile place for you to grow. And yet that is exactly what God is promising here in Isaiah 55. In the midst of your suffering, you should have a thorn bush, but God is saying there won't be a thorn bush. There'll be a juniper. I love this. What is a juniper tree? The characteristics of a juniper tree, they're resilient. They can grow even when they're removed from water and sunlight. In the harshest of conditions, that tree will grow to flourish. They're persistent. They've, they've been known to actually grow through a pile of rubble. That they could be, have rocks and, and things like that above their seed, but somehow they can push through and make their way. And the last thing, a juniper tree is tall. It's a sight to behold. God says, if you would just open yourself up in the low place, if you'd open yourself up in the low place, receive the seed of faith that I want to plant in your life. If you let me water you, wash you over you with, with my word and with my promises, if you'd let me tend to that seed, God is saying, I will make something grow that doesn't belong there. Instead of bitterness, you'll have joy. Instead of anger, you'll have peace. God says, your life, your faith will be an everlasting monument to my praise. When we accept that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, when we take captive our thoughts and force them into submission with Christ, anything can be possible. Anything is possible when you align yourself with the limitless God. Can I tell you today that God sees you in your struggle? He saw me in the hollowed out portion of that tree. There was a promise of deliverance for me and obviously I'm standing here so my dad came back. God sees you in the midst of your struggle and he wants to exchange your sorrow for joy. When I was, uh, last thing, when I was a, uh, a young man in my church growing up, we had this family in our church and they had a daughter who had special needs. And she was the life of every room that she walked in. She was funny, she was the loudest voice. It was, she was, her name was Amanda, she was the best. Everyone in the church loved her. Her parents loved her. It, you, you would have never known the uh, amount of, of special needs that she had. And yet their heart was just, they, she, they just loved her so much. And our church loved her so much. And she passed away at the age of 18. And I remember watching, my dad's the pastor of the church and, and I know this family very well. And so I was very close and I watched as this family went through something that was unimaginable. Their daughter died and yet somehow they were filled with joy. I remember specifically their mom, whose name was Gia. She, she, 
She was filled with such a joy and such a peace that I, I couldn't comprehend. She had just lost her daughter. What happened? This is the lowest point of her life. Why is she not broken? Why is she not angry? Why is she not bitter? Why does she not hate God? But somehow throughout the whole ordeal of losing a child, she remained at peace. And she set this example for her kids and for everyone in our church who watched this monument of God's faithfulness grow through her obedience and through the peace that she had. And later on, she would tell a story and she would say that she sat at her daughter's bedside as she took her last breath. Her daughter, who she loved more than anything else in the entire world, she sat at her bedside and as her daughter took her last breath, she said she felt an overwhelming weight of sorrow and sadness. But then she said in the same moment, she felt it lifted and in its place, there was peace and joy. And she said, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain where it came from. The only thing I know is it was God. But that's what God wants to do in your, in your sorrow. He says, if you will open up your life, if you will open yourself up, I have something that I want to do. I want to take your sorrow and I want to give you joy in its place. I want to take your struggle and I want to bring you deliverance, not in the way that you think it's coming, not in the way of your struggle ending or your, your sorrow or, or, or your um, suffering ending, but he's saying, I want to teach you how you can walk through this and then nothing can affect you because you have the peace of God in your life. And your faith will be an everlasting monument to the praise of God. Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for this word that you have for us, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you see us in the midst of brokenness. You see us in our despair, Lord God. You don't leave us there. You don't leave us there, Lord God. You're calling to us. You're saying, seek me. Seek me, Lord God. And today, that's what we want to do, Lord. We want to turn our hearts towards you. Lord, you said that we, that, if we, that we should seek you and we, we would seek you and find you when we sought you with our whole heart. And that's what we want to do today. If you're in this place, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this place, And you just say, I'm really going through it. I'm in the midst of struggle. I don't know what to do. Would you just stretch your hand up? Now I'm gonna ask us to do something that's a little bit uncomfortable. And everyone that put their hand up is suddenly worried. If you raised your hand, please raise, keep your hand raised. hands raised, keep your eyes closed. But if your hand's not raised, open your eyes. Go find someone with their hand up. And we're going to pray over some people today that are going through struggle. God wants to meet you in the midst of your struggle.
Let's surround some people with prayer, prayer today. And we're gonna worship and we're gonna praise and we're gonna believe for breakthrough. We're gonna believe that God is planting a seed of faith and that as you open yourself up, that he is going to water it and he's gonna cause you to flourish. That your life, your faith will be a monument to his praise. Father, we just lay these people before you, God. We open up our hearts to you, Jesus. In the lowest of lows, Lord God, we open our heart and we say, God, won't you plant a seed of faith in my heart? Won't you come and wash over me with your word? Come and wash over me with your promise, Lord. Lead me to a place, God, where I can have enough faith, Lord, to, to take captive my thoughts and to make them obedient to you. Help me to come to an understanding that your thoughts are above my thoughts and your ways are above my ways that I'm never gonna understand it. Help me to come to that place where, where I accept that I don't need to comprehend what it is you're doing. God, we say today that we trust you. We trust your word is true. We trust that you're faithful. And we trust, Lord God, that where there should be a thorn bush in our life, where there should be anger and bitterness and strife, there will be a monument of praise to you. A monument that provides blessing for all those around us. God, we believe that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for listening. River of Life is a ministry in East Missoula, Montana. We exist for one purpose, to make Jesus famous by showing his love to the lost, broken, and hurting. For more information, you can check us out online at rolmt.com. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus today, we'd love to talk to you about what comes next. Shoot us an email at nextstep at rolmt.com. Thanks.